This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri. I'm a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over, and I am joined today with the incredibly brilliant Catherine May. You remember... <laughs> That's a grand introduction. <laughs> <laughs> you all remember Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. It was one of Barnes & Noble's best books of 2020. And now she is back with the heartfelt, funny, and paradigm-shifting Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. So if you've read Wintering, you know what to expect. You're already excited. You know that this is going to be something good. If you haven't read Wintering yet, I mean, I think you should pick that up first, get yourself primed. But for those of you who aren't sure, I just want to let you know you're in for a big treat. Catherine, thank you so much for being with us today. That lovely introduction. And I love the bookselleriness of it. Like, buy both books, everyone. <laughs> I can't. It's a, the bookseller is in me forever. It will never, it'll never leave. It's in your soul. <laughs> it really is. I think once you, once you get in that mind frame, that's it. Bookseller forever. For our listeners out there who haven't uh, done a lot of research yet on Enchantment, do you want to give us just a brief overview of the book, what they've got in store? Absolutely. So Enchantment is a book that was that really arose from my need to find a better way to cope with the times we're living in. There's some pandemic stuff in there, but it's also thinking about this long century so far, which has left so many of us feeling so disoriented, burned out, agitated, anxious, just lost, really. And I started to explore how to ameliorate that. And I came to this practice, really, of reconnecting with my own sense of wonder over small things, over accessible things, rather than waiting for grand events or, or thinking that it exists somewhere else in the world. And so Enchantment really is a book about finding our feet again and, and reconnect. Absolutely. I think that the tangibility, the corporeal sense of wonder in this book is so interesting, so different. I think wonder as a term is so, can feel so overwhelming, so large, so, you know, yeah. disconnected from what we do day to day that Really, in this book, you break it down for us in a little bit, something a little <laughs> yeah. bit more understandable, a little more relatable for yeah. for all of us going day to day through, like you said, these times that are different, these unprecedented. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's about us having a sense of the possible, you know, like I, I grew up feeling like wonder was something that must exist somewhere else, you know, that, that where I lived couldn't possibly be good enough to be beautiful or inspiring or full of awe I think that's how we talk about it like it's this thing that you go to an amazing range of mountains to find you know on this once in a lifetime trip I find that really problematic ultimately you know I think lots of people can't afford to do that or can't physically do that or have other commitments <laughs> like we're busy we're looking after people right and it's really important for us to start to assert our right to those really life-giving sentiments and feelings in our own homes, like in our own backyard, you know, looking in the sky that, you know, just as you step outside your door, it's all there. Absolutely. When this idea for this book started rolling around in your head, did, did it start with that idea all fully formed? 
or was it more, you know, you write in a lot of these short vignettes, these little stories, these snippets. How did you, how did they sort of form into what this book is now? Yeah, no, it, it didn't come from a, a grand plan. I'd love to claim. I really, I really wish I could go, yeah, 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 I planned it this way. I did what I quite often do, which is I write to find my meaning, um, which is, I think, where the, the vignettes come from, really. You know, I, I sit down and think, okay, well, what do I want to say? I'm, I'm not quite sure how it relates to this book, but I need to write it anyway. And after enough times of needing to write it anyway those things begin to string together but it, it was it was a very elusive book this one I, I it was a genuine quest I, I think I hope like as people read it they'll be able to see that I really did write from the depths of brain fog and, and trying to find an expression of like what that state feels like and therefore I was look I was looking for what to do and how to deal with it and how to cope and so the I think the process of writing the book really does mirror the journey like I was I was that lost at the beginning and I really I really did and you know came out of it feeling changed by the process in a in a really authentic way and it, it's quite interesting you know because I finished the edits of the book roughly a year ago and of course I haven't thought about the book very hard for a year you know well I have but I've not been deeply engaged with it and now I'm talking about it and it's made me realize like how changed I, I've been by that process and how my own practice of connecting has been I think I think permanently shifted honestly um, and that's quite nice quite nice when you realize that your own book has got messages for you you know <laughs> I've learned something. <laughs> it seemed a very like cathartic experience almost seeing it out on the page. And I think readers will have sort of a mirroring experience there as they're working through it. I found myself taking a lot of breaks while I was reading and having to be like, I need to think about myself a little bit yeah. before I go yeah. back in. And I found that with wintering too, when I was re the first time mm. I read that, you know, there's a lot of those moments where what you say something and I think, mm, hold on a moment, I've got to <laughs> process that back a little bit, which I think is something that any it's, book yeah. can we can find, you know, there's something like that in all, all literature, all books, when those things hit I, back. Yeah, totally. And I, I think my like guiding principle as a writer is I'm so interested in the moment when the reader takes over. I, I love that readers have so much agency when they read and I know that the second I let go of the book it becomes each individual readers and I, I think I wrote in the when I wrote my proposal for wintering I wrote that I wanted it to be a book that feels like I'm walking alongside the reader learning as they learn mm -hmm. and that really stuck with me that was like a sort of statement of intent that's that's changed the way I write I hope that comes across I, I'm not interested in writing didactic books we've got so many books out there that tell you exactly how to do it and that just leaves us with this sense of failure quite often because we rarely can do it like that it rarely sticks it rarely works but I'm much more interested in creating books that feel personal because there's so much of the reader in them and less of me like I'm I'm always trying to exit the page a little bit <laughs> I think I think it works I think I think readers will find themselves between these pages very much speaking of wintering I was rereading wintering to prepare for reading enchantment and 
it's an interesting time of year to be reading it because it's becoming spring here and it's been so unseasonably warm in New York that my brain was having a little bit of uh, disconnect reading wintering. But do you feel like there's a progression from one to the other? I feel like when I was reading them sort of back to back, they do fit very well together as sort of this pair. Did you feel a progression when you were writing those two? I was definitely seeking it. You know, it was definitely the question that I was asking myself, like, what next? Like, what do I say next? I didn't fully start writing Enchantment until after Wintering had come out. So there was that, you know, feeling of slight pressure. You know, people were telling me that it was a book that had defined an era for them. And I was thinking, how do I approach that as a writer like wow I have got some responsibility now no pressure Um, after that no no pressure at all (laughs) (laughs) but it made me think really deeply about need and and what I needed and and therefore what I assume another group of people are gonna need to think about next and it's about survival how we survive in a in a very very changed environment that feels disrupted and like we're on shifting sands all the time and we're dealing with a lot of grief the grief from death sure like we've all been dealing with that kind of grief but actually this broader spectrum of grief about a a world that we are losing and I, I think for me like a some very hopeful assumptions that the world was getting better that I I think I really 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 believed uh, you know, in my 20s, for example, the receding of that away from me and this uprising in intolerance and hatred and violence is something that I think we all really need to make space to mourn now. And of course, the act of mourning is, is an act of change, an act of processing change. And the world is still good, but we've got to find it in a really, really, really different way now. And we can't meet it with the same minds and mindsets that we did 10 years ago it's different absolutely I mean as I was reading I was really struck with though these themes are incredibly universal and incredibly beyond the scope of time this is an incredibly timely piece of work I think Mm. it is very important that it happen that it comes out now that people you know that we're going through these things now because like you said this is something that is a new reality for so many of us. And we're living in this world that is post so many things, post pandemic, all this. Post everything. Yes. When I, when I start, I I rebooted my podcast a couple, uh, couple, well, about a month ago, and I made the subtitle like pathways for a post everything world. Cause yeah, that that word post is so relevant. Sorry. No, (laughs) it's true. We hear it all the time, post this, post that. And and that can be very heavy to be sort of yeah. sitting under. And there's so much of, um, are we entering into a different landscape now? What's the world going to look like? And how are we going to sort of respond? And I think there's so much in here that is directed at that. And if, if there's readers yeah. looking for something, that this is going to give them something there. The big question for me, because I, I I think our online lives mean that we spend a lot of time debating what other people should do and how other people should behave better. <laughs> and while that's true, <laughs> I think the big question for me is always, how do I change my approach to this now? Like, what, <laughs> what, what behaviours do I need to find that meet this moment? 
um, where have I been going wrong, honestly? And I think the one of the answers for me was was lay in my long-standing awkwardness around spiritual mm-hmm. matters, which has, yeah, that question has been bubbling up in me for a long time and a desire towards a spiritual life that I've also felt too awkward about it to really address and kept pushing back and kind of like mm, no that's not that's none of my business that's stuff stuff that other yeah. people do and I'm going to feel really silly and that's the very vulnerable core of enchantment is me owning up to that need that I feel without knowing the answers to it. and actually without wanting the answers particularly like I, I think the answers are what makes me feel uncomfortable the idea that any one of us knows how this is done and, and what this all yeah. means like on a grand right. scale opening up permission for myself to wonder about it is a is a really different question that's one of the threads that runs through the book definitely I think that we spent so long thinking we just want things to go back to that post-pandemic you yeah. know but do we really is it better to go back or is there a better way forward yeah. now is there something is this an opportunity in some ways to to reframe thinking reframe what we do now going forward it seems in you in what you write that that, that is something that you know, is very important yeah. is we've got an opportunity to reframe some of the things that we've been doing and though it comes at the expense of a lot of grief and hardship yeah Sometimes that's where the biggest change comes, is, is from those those bigger yeah. losses and moving yeah. forward now in a different way. We can't go back. The world is changed, as the world will always do. We can't avoid the pain either. Like that is, that's there, it's present for all of us. And there's no winning strategy that would negate any of that, that would take the pain away, that would make everything go back there's nothing there's nothing that we could do right that would achieve that for ourselves so yeah it's a big acceptance to make it's a, it's a big acceptance it's a little heavy but in mm. your books, though, there's so much levity there's there's still so much space for joy and curiosity and and wonder and sort of seeking something beyond the heaviness that we see every day going back a little bit into these sort of short stories or short vignettes that you write in do you have like a favorite little piece from the book or something to sort of tease for our listeners i mean there's the brock inspector piece that i love there's okay the shooting star piece that i love the moment that i had to close the book the most and just think about is in the piece about meditation when you realize that um, maybe meditation has been designed for men, and that's why it's so difficult to incorporate into um, your daily practice. I had to, I had to do some thinking on that one for a while. <laughs> that one really hit me. Yeah, but that, was, that was a really important bit for me. Actually, it, it was an important shift in my own thinking. Was really absorbing how um, I'd often judged my own spiritual development. That's a very grand term um, against this paradigm of the the man who goes off alone and thinks about it until they can figure it out maybe for years I have a problem with that I don't think it's bad in and of itself but I think a very specific set of circumstances let people do that Mm -hmm. and meanwhile the everyday world continues and women, as we know, are so often the ones that are most ensnared in caring responsibilities 
and are holding everything down while to facilitate that act of spiritual enlightenment. And I just think it's about time the respect rang both ways. That's all, you know. Right. There's a very different um, expectation yeah. for a woman who, you know, were to leave her whole life behind for this sort of grand spiritual journey. And a man who is to leave his life behind for the same thing. I think there's a very different response there. While his wife looks after the kids quite often. Yes, of course. But, yes. you know, and, and it's not just about women and men. I mean, Absolutely. You know, the number of men who are caring for partners, for example, is yes. totally invisible. Absolutely. And we need to start to really admire the reserves that, that those people find who go back and care over and over again at their own expense and find tenderness when they're exhausted and keep advocating for a more vulnerable person when they themselves are suffering. And I, like that is a really high calling as far as I can see it. And it's hidden. It, you know, I just, I just want some of those gurus to be sitting around in a circle listening to those people. Absolutely. Tell them how that's done and tell them about the, the practice and the asceticism and the contact with the beating heart of life that that, that, that brings us to. Uh, there's just a lot of mutual learning that can be, can be done there. I think that your your stories are so relatable and so interesting. There's so many times where I'm like, oh, I've had so many moments like that. You know, when, and the piece that's so interesting, you know, this isn't a, a personal growth book or a self-help book. This isn't a memoir. It's, it sort of fits somewhere in between. And so much of that, what makes it yeah. digestible and relatable is that you've put so much of yourself into this. Oh, always. Yeah. I just, I always mean to avoid putting myself into my books quite so much, but <laughs> I always read all my way in there. There's a, I've got a few favorite bits. Okay. I think the thing that comes to mind immediately is the bit where I talk about my grandmother peeling an orange every afternoon. Mm -hmm. It's a really short part of the book, but there's a, it's a touchstone for me. I'm using it to talk about the um, concept of hierophany, which is this idea that the spiritual <laughs> can manifest itself in the physical world and that we can read or imbue objects with our whole spiritual worldview. And for me, that is a hierophany, just that returning to those moments when I, on, you know, in this very quiet house in the afternoon, my grandma would sit down and peel an orange as a ritual. I don't think she'd have expressed it as a ritual, but mm -hmm. looking back on it, it was. It was a ritual. It was this, this marker in time in the afternoon and this moment of great reverence for something that she just loved she just loved oranges and it's a touchstone for me because it makes me think how scathing I'm, I am of oranges I'm not scathing of oranges but <laughs> you know like I, I wouldn't consider oranges to be worthy of my reverence right and I take those those wonderful things for granted um so that's that's the moment that comes up for me another real touchstone that orient, oriented me in the writing of this book was the bit towards the end about the meteor storm I probably won't give too much away about it because no. I think I, I think, think maybe if people fun. have never read about it before it's a it's a magical thing to encounter actually but it's a historical meteor storm that changed people's perspectives so fundamentally and literally made people feel feel the sense of standing on a planet in space and that shift that shift in thinking 
is the shift I kept trying to make as I was writing the book. And it was just, it just felt like such a fundamental part. And I, when I first wrote the book, that bit was right at the beginning. And it gradually got moved throughout the book because I didn't know where to put it. <laughs> didn't, you know, yeah. it, it kind of it had to account for itself. And in lots of ways, it feels like slightly different to the rest of the book. But I, I think that's what's important about it. It was, it was definitely this idea that I had to hold on to, the idea that you can witness something in the sky above your head that fundamentally changes your perspective about it, who you are and what the world's all about. Um, and yeah, that, that bit's really important to me. Yeah, that's, I mean, those are two of my favorite moments. The concept of hierophany, when I was reading this book, was just like, oh, that's the word for it. It's, yeah. this, it's this concept that we yeah. sort of move around so, you know, sometimes inelegantly in our own lives, trying to mm-hmm. find what is, and in a completely, you know, for people varying degrees of, it's not a religious concept, really, it's a it's an yeah. internal spiritual sort of connection with the universe or connection with yeah what? i think it unites all of the different spiritualities in lots of ways mm-hmm. you know that it, it makes as much sense in christianity as it does in like a kind of ancient animistic religion right. or an ordinary person who sometimes feels like there's a bit more magic in some parts of the world than others <laughs> i love the way it it kind of universalizes this very human desire to connect the material world with the non-material world. And it's just, a, it's a really pretty word as well, isn't it? Doesn't it sound lovely yes. as you say it? Hierophony. It's it really is. lovely. It's lovely. And it is one of those concepts that I think I will definitely keep walking away with this book. Mm. It's, it's, it's in there now. Um, and I think it's <laughs> so <laughs> important for sort of this rerouting that we're all trying to do right now and this grounding within ourselves and within our own lives. And like you said earlier, it's so easy these days to be very concerned about what others are doing. It's so easy to be very overly connected perhaps with what others are doing in reference to ourselves that judgmentally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And judgmentally to others and to ourselves. Um, Oh yeah. And I think that uh, a lot of this, this new, you know, this idea that you're coming to here is how do we look in words? I think the hierophany mm. piece really resonates. <laughs> but actually, it's like a, one way to connect with other people is to look for their hierophanies as well and to, to watch for the things that they hold sacred and to show respect for other people's hierophanies, I think. Absolutely. And everybody has them. Yeah. And I think it's sort of part of recognizing them is something that's going to be so interesting for people to to come to as they're reading. Um, I think it mm. sort of shines a light back a little bit onto our own, onto the reader's, you know, perspectives. Yeah, into, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to learn about that word without wondering what yours are, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Yeah, so mm-hmm. true. One that I think we might agree on from seeing is journaling. I think I'm, it's a little selfish to want to talk about journaling because it's very important to me, but I think that's such an easy um, example for a lot of people is um, mm. like a journaling mm. as a practice. Do you feel like that, is that a part of how all these books come to be is through your your journaling, your writing, or are those separate for yeah, you? Yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> I, always, I always kind of call myself a true journaler because I am such a sporadic writer even even in my own like private spaces my notebooks 
are abandoned for several months at a time <laughs> except for shopping lists maybe or like crazy to-do lists of like <laughs> really boring things you know and then I'll go through phases of writing in them really intensely I mean writing is the way I process everything and so, and whether that's writing for public consumption um, or privately I'm always trying to like make a record of my thoughts and it it surprises me so often when I look back over my, you know, great big archive of notebooks, all of the thoughts that I've had that I have completely let go of, you know, that they're no longer present and they feel like the mind work of somebody who isn't me. That is a source of kind of wonder to me, like how much we shed. I've been beginning to work up some ideas for my next book at the moment and I've been, you know, writing a lot about that. And I was flicking through an old notebook the other day and this idea that I thought I'd just come up with, there it was, I think, eight months ago, fully formed, and I'd written it down and then completely forgotten about of course. it. You know? Yes, we have a tendency yes. to sneak up on ourselves. <laughs> it's really strange. So you think these things have come out of nowhere and you're like, no, no, I've been working on this for quite some time. Uh, I just didn't yes. remember. <laughs> it's a bit worrying, actually. Well, maybe it's just a, you know, it's a, something that needed more time to ruminate and now we're you go back to it a little more formed like a thought park for me I you know and I I worry a bit about some of the online journaling cultures that are so much about appearance right. and you know making your journal look pretty and I Mine are when not I pretty. work with oh god no <laughs> <laughs> in fact like one of the one of the kind of parts of my practice is that I will only write in fairly scruffy notebooks because sure. The minute, I mean, people are always buying me beautiful journals and yes. I can't I can't say a thing in them because the pressure that they radiate back out mm-hmm. at you to create something beautiful yes. is just too much for me. Absolutely. But I, you know, like I often, you know, work to writers and I find that there's this real sense of intimidation that some people have about putting anything on the page at all that derives from the sense that it must be immediately not only like intelligent and perceptive and coherent, which my journals never are, but also beautiful, like actually physically lovely as well. And it must be in their best handwriting. And that like there must be like loads of colours applied to it, you know. <laughs> I just really want us to be allowed to get rid of that because that's not everybody's creative practice. Like it is Absolutely. for some people fantastic, but it certainly isn't mine. And it, you, like, I can barely even read my own handwriting in my journals, yes. let alone, you know, find them meaningful. They are scattered thoughts of a person who is, it does not make sense when you add it all up together. And that's fine. And that's where all my books come from is that really scrappy beginning. I worry about how we turn every lovely thing into something full of hideous pressure. Like, why do we do yes, that to ourselves? <laughs> I know. It's something so human and so daunting that everything must mm. now face, the, you know, some sort of outward criticism, this outward aestheticism that is so difficult yeah. to, to sort of navigate within ourselves. <laughs> And just not know, fair, and it, frankly. It has to, yeah, and it has to eventually appear on Instagram, like artfully oh, yeah. lit, you know. No one is ever going to see the pages of my journals on Instagram, friends. Like, let's just be really <laughs> clear about that. Yes. 
some things. If you saw it, you would be able to read it. <laughs> yeah. It's like you could see it, but you're not going to get anything out of it. Just my, I could take a picture of my shelf of unwritten in nice journals and that's it. <laughs> I've got some lovely unwritten in nice. They're so beautiful. What do you do with them? You keep them. You just put them on a bookshelf. They're lovely. Yes. <laughs> Oh, I've got one that a friend handmade for me. Oh, that's and... a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, like, that's never going to get opened. What do you put in that? It's so lovely. <laughs> <laughs> to switch topics, after you've just indulged me talking about journaling, <laughs> what's the message that you hope people walk away from when they leave Enchantment? What's that feeling that they, you hope they leave with? Hope that they leave with a sense that they already have all the tools at their disposal to access their own sense of enchantment and I, I don't think anyone would leave the book thinking that I have told them where that would be found <laughs> you know my stuff is definitely my stuff and their stuff is theirs I want people to realize this that they probably have felt enchantment throughout their lives they might have stepped away from it but that all they have to do is follow their own curiosity and it's probably to be found a couple of metres away. The, 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 there's a line in the book that's the magic is of our own conjuring, um, which I think sums it up, really. You bring the attention and the desire to feel enchanted. And if you do that, it's a muscle and you will tune into whatever your whatever brings it to you. No, it's absolutely. I think that that makes perfect sense to me. This is a little bit similar, but I always like asking authors this question because I get so many interesting responses. But who do you hope finds this book? What kind of reader do you hope picks this up and, you know, gets mm. this a try? I hope that it's for someone who has felt the certainty slip away from them uh, and is feeling very lost and who doesn't want to return to that certainty. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're the people that will find a new life in this book. It's that sense of being in a wide open space and looking for directions. And if you can really be in that space, if you can allow yourself to genuinely be lost and directionless and uncertain, then I think the book will give you a lot. I think. How does it feel to put these books out into the world like you you do put so much of yourself out into these into yeah. these pages how does it feel on the the precipice of putting it out for everyone <laughs> there's fear there's joy there's you know your comedy there's yeah the, you know crushing weight of existentialism a little bit <laughs> yeah existential sometimes it it does but there is like a, I'm sure there's a specific phenomena of the memoirist terror, you know, right. that yeah. seizes you in the middle of the night, probably exactly two months before your book comes out. And you just think, oh my God, did I actually put that in my book? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like Electricity of Every Living Thing was such an exposing book for me mm -hmm. and so like dirty in terms of the emotional kind of content of it. That one really scared the hell out of me. It did catch me in wintering without a doubt. And this time I have a little bit more of a sense of, oh, this is a process that, you know, that I'll go through. Because I, I think what I've learned is that the bits that felt the most exposing to me are the bits that people are the most grateful to read. And, uh, and who, they will always be the bits that people write to me about. Um, and I'm always seeking those 
moments when I'm writing, you know, like trying to strip away the artifice of how I want to present myself and pass through that looking glass to find the actual rubbish, dirty humanity behind that. And that's, yeah, that is, it's part of my practice and I, I'm not satisfied with my writing unless it's there quite often. But yeah, there is that sense of people are going to see the inside of my head again and it's not very <laughs> tidy and it's full of silly, you know, like, I don't know, full of daft thoughts and wrong thoughts and confused thoughts. <laughs> We're all very grateful to read those thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they're important, are they? Because I... It troubles me, not only that the world is full of people who are really happy to go out and present their very best side and pretend that that's them all the way through and tell other people that that's how it should be done. And it also troubles me that we carry on believing those people when they do it. And that's got to stop. That's, not, that's For me, that's got to be one of the changes that begins to happen. Not everyone is the pretty journal on the shelf. We have uh, to. Uh, we have to go beyond I, it a little bit. I mean, for me, like no more messiahs, you know, right. no more. I think if the last ten years has taught us anything, it is the fundamental disorderedness of the people that claim to have the most answers, and how much harm it's done—like genuine, real-world harm—and how often that's linked to abuse in a very very direct way that that desire to control your image so tightly and the behavior of other people and how that translates into the way that those people actually treat others and yeah I really am post guru in my life I think we need a lot more (laughs) books from people that we can all relate to. We all have messy thoughts. We all feel, you know, sometimes that untidiness yeah. in our brain, the unruliness in our own brains and reading from the perspective of others that are experiencing the same things and are just seeking out the answers to those same questions is a lot more profound and useful for all of us in our daily lives. Let's like tangle in it together. I mean, there's, we are so 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 in need to re-find ways to be communities again and to be families again in the broadest sense of that term and to to reconnect in like to genuinely reconnect rather than surface reconnect and the answers come from all of us together they're never going to come from like one person who's had a little think about it it's just it's not good enough anymore it's just not good enough and yeah and I know that's something you are dealing with a lot in your podcast. Obviously, we want to yeah. give you the chance to do a little podcast plug because we love podcasts <laughs> here. That I know that you are working a lot on this sort of connectedness, togetherness now on this new yeah. season. I work in like mini seasons on my podcast now. Um, and each mini season has a guiding question. And I try and ask a range of people from like very different perspectives and backgrounds and approaches to discuss a common question with me and and this season we've been thinking about how we can come back together again the amazing thing about doing that is that I I change over the course of the season like I get to really really explore a topic that I really want to 
know the answers to. That sense of reconnecting has been enormous for for my work lately. And and, and that's because I know that I am by temperament a very solitary person. You know, I grew up as an only child. I, you know, I've always lived in small families. I've never Mm -hmm. been part of like a that big extended family and I was also like a a teenager and child who didn't have many friends it's really challenging for me to be in community and I but I still value it and I I know that I need to learn to be a better community member and it's yeah it is that authentic inquiry again absolutely so important to me it's very important to round out this conversation with my bringing back to my bookseller sensibilities (laughs) I always feel like I need to ask people about their literary influences. You talk about books so much in your writing. You reference yeah. so many um, important texts to you or to what you're talking about. I definitely go back and write down all the things you mentioned to check out <laughs> later on. So what are some of your literary influences? Fiction, nonfiction, anything that sort of shaped Catherine May? Yeah, I so broad, really. Right, um, yeah, it's an easy I, question. I am... Yeah, it is. It's really hard because, you know, like you do speak to some writers who will name an author and they're like, right, I really, I wanted to write like them. Um, And I've never quite felt like that. But I, I do know that I've always been drawn to like very thoughtful memoirs. So I loved Joan Didion from quite a way back. I think one of the first writers that I really really wanted to be like was Jenny Diskey who I don't think is maybe as well known in the states but in the UK she wrote like a newspaper column uh, and she she wrote about uh, mental health and the wild uh, and she just had but she's also like incredibly funny and acerbic and and that for me captures the everythingness of writing that I want <laughs> writing to deliver because I don't I don't think we always approach serious topics in a serious way. Like I think humour is woven into everything that humans do. And whenever I read something that's only serious, I don't fully believe it. I don't, I don't trust it because I think there's like a whole kind of sector of our humanness that's been removed from it. And I, I love reading writers with that mix. But, you know, on a really different note, I, when I first read Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, it changed what I thought a contemporary writer could do and, and what they were allowed to do. And I, you know, like, I think Susanna Clarke is talking about God throughout that. Like, I really, I think in lots of ways she's exploring some of the stuff I'm talking about, enchantment, like that that desire for something to make sense of of this world and to bring order to it and magic like her magic is much more literal than my magic (laughs) I remember the first time I read that book just thinking okay this is a different game than I thought it was it was really formative for me without a doubt I could talk about this subject subject for about like five hours and talk and give you 500 writers I think that's (laughs) most of us could but and I could sit and really talk to you about all of this all day, but I think <laughs> you're right. But I know we're reaching the end of our time. So Catherine May, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such an amazing conversation. I've loved getting to get inside your head a little bit more from than just from enchantment. And for all of our right. <laughs> and for all of our listeners, enchantment is out now. It is going to be 
one of your favorite reads of the year. I guarantee it. You can see Catherine as well on her podcast, How We Live Now. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. I had such a great time. So lovely to talk to you. And yes, as you say, we could have done this for a few hours. It's it's (laughs) like such a lovely topic to roam around in. Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to go along with your copy of Enchantment. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie. I'm in uh, my Barnes & Noble in Leawood, Kansas. Fantastic. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. I am always excited for Catherine May to write something new, but I wanted to touch on a book that just gave me a similar sort of feel to Catherine May, and that is Kate Baer, the poet. Uh, Specifically, her newest collection called And Yet. Baer, her poetry is absolutely lovely. She uh, had a debut collection recently called What Kind of Woman that received all kinds of well-deserved accolades. Uh, I loved that collection so much. But this new collection, she revisits some of those themes that uh, really made her stand out. Friendship, loss, love, motherhood. She speaks a lot to the sorrows of not having enough time in the day, time enough to relish in the joys in life. But I think what she's done with her poetry collection and with her poems specifically is she gives these moments for you to reflect upon and just to pause and just live in these words in a really lovely way. So she's kind of granting us uh, permission to just sort of be, which is Very in line with uh, Catherine May's writing. These poems contain kind of a somber intimacy, but also so, so very dazzling. I think she just fits really perfectly with Catherine May's gentle urging to connect to the world around us. So please check out anything by Kate Bear, specifically her newest collection, And Yet. Jamie, what do you have for us? Well, I'm in sort of the same vein here. I was intrigued when I heard um, Catherine May talk about being just a very practical person who has perhaps over the years kind of shoved down the spiritual side of herself. So she wrote, you know, her book to recapture that big feeling of awe, right? And that struck a chord with me um, because I'm also a very practical person and I don't always give myself space and time to contemplate these big cosmic questions or moments. On my lunch break, I grabbed a copy to flip through as booksellers are prone to do, and um, I found that I could not stop reading it. Uh, Pico Iyer has been traveling um, his entire life, and in this book, he takes us along in search of paradise, or if not, you know, a literal destination, then the idea of paradise across all these different cultures and these places where he's traveling. And the first essay I read over my lunch break, it's a really lovely story. He comes to Iran, hoping to see the largest mosque um, in the world in Mashhad. And he finds a pair of wonderful drivers and groups of pilgrims that are traveling um, to a holy festival. He finds a bustling and modern city. It is inhabited by politicians, by poets, by police, by devout individuals. And he sees these furious complications and wonders um, of these competing visions of heaven uh, and wonders if they're always going to increase conflict or if the complications themselves could be a kind of paradise, which is kind of a big question for me to contemplate during my, my lunch break. I had to keep coming back to the book. Um, There's a through line through all of the stories and all of the places that he travels 
Um, but you can pick it up and put it back down again, as I did over that next week. And you can travel with Pico to Japan, to Jerusalem, North Korea, Sri Lanka. Um, you can visit festivals and temples and cemeteries. And through all this traveling, he sort of concludes that it is kind of simple or easy to believe that you've found paradise when you're sitting on the top of a, of a great mountain or in a serene temple, but finding it in the middle of chaos and confusion and sorrow, um, which is what his uh, longtime friend, the Dalai Lama, teaches, is letting paradise, in other words, find you where you are, is holy. So that's The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise by Pico Iyer. Fantastic. I feel like this sort of trio of May and Bear and Iyer, I think, just lend to everybody being very curious and very hungry for either enlightenment or just small moments or that, you know, the buzzword of self-care that um, can really just have its tendrils attached to so many different things. I think that these are three great choices that I think everybody can just sit with and just be, which we all need. So nice work as usual. Intentional living, right? Yes, exactly. All the buzzwords. Um, Well, that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning into Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Happy reading. Bye. Bye, Mark. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.